before Mike comes up and preaches, um, I'm just going to read a, a little passage over you today, and um, actually on, on the, the note of youth ministry, something we're ta- taught very early on is that communication starts with understanding the language of the person you're speaking to, how to speak to them, uh, but then the most important part of communication actually is heart. It's actually the uh, connecting two hearts together, and people know the difference, the difference between somebody communicating to you and somebody who is communicating their heart to you. There's a big difference. Um, and that's what we try to get to. Scripture gives us a lot of information about how God communicates with us. Um, and we don't actually have to know language very well. He talks about, the gr- he understands the groanings of our hearts. There's times when we're silent and he gives us the words to speak. But one time, one time, Jesus actually gave us specific wordage to use. He gave us specific concepts to use. Um, in order to connect our hearts to the Lord. And so as I read the Lord's Prayer over our time before Mike comes up, I'd encourage you to consider what the difference is between understanding these words and connecting to your, your heart to the Lord's heart with each of these concepts and how we do that. I'm going to read from Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and it should be on the screen for you so you can follow along. This is from CSB. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. These are Jesus' words. Hello again. Powerful prayer. Um, I asked BJ to read that this morning, and I didn't realize that theme night was 80s and 90s this week, so you'll probably see me there because 80s and 90s is like Monday morning for me. (laughs) So it's interesting uh, what the Lord does, um, things that I don't foresee uh, as we prepare our hearts to hear from his word this morning, just the prayers that people are praying in the room, and um, even hearing the Lord's prayer, I'm already getting, I might get emotional this morning, I'm just warning you, (laughs) I feel like the Lord has something to say to some people in this room, I know he has something to speak to all of us, but I think there are some specific people that need to hear this, Um, and I think that this might be something, might be one of those moments for some of you where the Lord um, grabs your heart in a way that is... um, this might be a, a stake in the ground moment for you. This might be something that shakes you and that you remember for a very long time. And I'm not saying that because I have anything special to say, but as we saw on Wednesday night, for those of us who were um, blessed enough to come and hear the word of God spoken, it's because the word of God is going to speak and it's going to accomplish what he desires for it to accomplish and there is power in it. And so I just believe that this morning something very impactful is going to happen in some of our hearts. Um, just by hearing the prayers and kind of seeing what's happening in in the church right now. If you turn this morning to Matthew chapter 14, it's where we've been studying through. We're getting towards the end of our study uh, through the gospel of um, Mark. And as you turn to Mark chapter 14, find verse 32 this morning. That's where we'll be picking up. The disciples have freshly washed feet. 
The Passover meal's been consumed. A new meal has been introduced. The upper room discourse and the prayer of Jesus has now been spoken. And they leave the house, Jesus and the 11 now, because they're missing one, who's already making plans to show up in our text in the garden. They cross over the Kidron Valley in between, which lays in between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, and we know that Jesus and his disciples were celebrating Passover inside the city walls. So they had gone from Bethany on the eastern side of Jerusalem across the valley into the city. They celebrated Passover there, and now they're making their way back outside of the city across the Kidron to the base of the Mount of Olives, where there was a an olive grove there and an olive press, and the garden's name was Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means olive press. And so there they're going to gather, and during his, teacher in the upper, during his teaching in the upper room on this night, Jesus said this from John chapter 15, verses 9 through 14. He has just spoken these words to his disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Words of Jesus right before leaving the upper room. It's vital, I think, that we ask ourselves two questions this morning before we enter the garden with Jesus and his disciples. Number one, do we believe in a loving God? And number two, if we do, how does that shift our attitude? How does it shift my attitude if I believe that God is a loving God? What does that change about me? I want you to consider the words that we'll have on screen for you next from Anthony Campbell. He wrote this. Originally, I believe the acceptance of a loving God involved a sufficient but relatively minor shift of attitude. After all, it was on so many people's lips. The more I worked with it, the more I realized that the acceptance and faith of God's unconditional love was not only hugely significant, it required a major change of attitude. The major shift may be the images we have of God and ourselves. How radically is our image of God reshaped if we take seriously the belief in God as deeply, passionately, and unconditionally loving us? How radically must we rework our own self-image if we accept ourselves as lovable, as deeply, passionately, and unconditionally loved by God? Self-image is something that you hear a lot about in our culture. But it's spoken to from a culture that's in the world speaking about our self-image apart from God. How ought we to think of ourselves as those who are loved by God and belong to God and who have been made co-heirs with Christ? I think we need to think about this a little bit more. I think we need to dwell on it. We need to meditate on that a little bit more. Have we as born-again believers bought into a view of ourselves that is heavy on self-depreciation? Where we beat ourselves up for our faults or our mistakes. Where we beat each other up because of their faults or their mistakes. Meaning, when we do this, we beat ourselves up for being unworthy, for being unfaithful, for being imperfect, for being in our own eyes unlovable. 
How could God love something like me? And someone says, oh, but it's only by grace. But somehow we find this way that in the grace of God, we don't accept how he sees us. We just see him as being gracious and continue to view ourselves as trash. Do we see ourselves differently than God does? That's the question that's been bugging me all week this week. Do I view myself differently than God views me? Because I think for much of my life I have. I couldn't stand myself. I didn't like myself. I didn't love anything about who I am. And I disagreed with God's opinion of me. And think about how that gets reflected on my fellow believers. Think about how that gets reflected on the body when we don't accept who God says we are and that we are lovable. Do we see ourselves differently than he does? Do we know ourselves more than he does? Do we think that we actually have some secret knowledge about who we are that makes us unlovable that God doesn't see? Oh, if he really knew me. Oh, trust me. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows me better than I know myself. Do we agree with our Father that because of Jesus, we are lovable, faithful, perfect, and worthy? Can we just take a moment, and yes, this all matters for our study today. This all matters when we look at Mark 14. Just before they go to Gethsemane, Jesus prayed in John 17 these words. He's in the upper room. He's praying before they leave to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. I, speaking to the Father, I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Church, I want you to hear that with fresh ears. I am in them and you are in me, Jesus says, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. How does God love you by Jesus' own comparison? It's on the screen. He loves us the same way that he loves the Son. I could just set the microphone down and let us sit here for half an hour and think about that. That God the Father loves you as much as he loves the Son. That the triune God is so capable, so loving, so powerful that he has brought you into the fellowship of the triune God as the Father sent the Son whom he loves just as much as he loves us to die in our place and then fill us with his Holy Spirit, bringing us into perfect fellowship with the triune God. This should rock our world. This should change everything about us. But it's crazy to me how often I still think ill of myself and I still think ill of my family. We need to adopt a new way of thinking. We need to agree with God that we are not only loved by him, he really, really likes us and enjoys our presence. He takes joy in who we are. He takes joy in who you are. The triune God who created everything we have ever seen and had perfect fellowship before the foundation of the world loves us as much as he loves himself. That just blows me away. 
Don't say, please don't say ever again that you're unlovable when God himself says you are. Can we agree to that? I'm not making this up to make you feel good about yourself. This is not me telling you to live your best life now. I am telling every single one of you what God himself says about you. And we need to believe it and agree with it. Don't say that you're unlovable because we disagree with God when we say that. We're disagreeing with God. If I say, I'm not lovable, he says, yes, you are, and this is how much. And you're like, well, it's only because he sees me in Christ now. What does it say in Romans? It says that while you were dead in your trespasses and sin, Christ died for you. He loved you before. That means that you can't fail your way out of his love, church. You can't disappoint him so much that he'll stop loving you. Do you realize how much freedom is found in that? Chains are gone. Shackles are gone. We're now free. And of course, because we read all the way through Romans on Wednesday, I'm just wanting to teach Romans now. It's just all there, and I want to, let's just read all that again and hear that in its entirety. Don't say you're unlovable. It cost the Father way too much to prove to you that you are. It cost him way too much to prove to you that you are. It cost the Son and the Spirit way too much to prove to you that you are. In introducing the final night, this final night in John chapter 13, as John begins the upper room discourse recording, in John 13, 1, it says this, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he did what? He loved them to the end. Jesus is all in on us. He loves us all the way to the end. And not just the end of our physical lives, but in Christ, he's going to escort us through death unto eternity. Amen? He will continue to love us. He will keep on loving us all the way through eternity. What we see in the garden is the raw and real experience of Jesus, and we get to see his final push to finish what he set out to do for the joy that was set before him for the joy of redeeming us, for not only fulfilling the mission of the Father, but redeeming those whom he loves so dearly. And that's us. He was here to fulfill the Father's mission. He was clothed with humanity, and he understood what was coming. Factors that we can only attempt to understand in part. Knowing what's coming, Jesus enters the garden, realizing that the moment of betrayal is at hand. But for the joy that was set before him, and we see in our text just how difficult this was for our Lord. It's a view into his humanity and his deity at the same moment knowing what he's about to accomplish, but feeling the weight physically of what's going to happen to him. And we have to see Jesus in that light. We have to see him as a full man and fully God, as, as experiencing everything in humanity, but also knowing what's about to happen on the cross. So let's read about what happened in the garden. Let's read it in its entirety from verses 32 through 52 of Mark 14, and then we will just highlight some things that we see in the text. But let's let the word of God speak. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. 
He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. And then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Notice that the 11 disciples are present in Gethsemane, but much like the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes the same three disciples on with him for a closer look. Peter, James, and John. Interestingly enough, these are the three that pledged their willingness to die for him. James and John in Mark chapter 10, verses 38 through 39, and Peter just prior to entering the garden. These are the three guys who have demonstrated clearly, James and John, yes, we can drink from the same cup that you're going to drink from Jesus, even though it says they probably didn't really understand what he was saying. And then Peter, I'll never betray you. Clearly and loudly, and you see it in the text that Jesus calls out Simon the first time solo. It says they're all sleeping, plural, they're sleeping. But Peter, he says, Peter, why are you asleep? You were so loud about being obedient. But Jesus hasn't asked any of them to die for him tonight. Jesus had not asked any of the disciples to die for him in his place on this night in Gethsemane. He asked them to remain in a certain place and to stay awake. He asked two things of them, stay here, stay awake. He needs to be with the Father alone, but notice this, he wants them close by. Jesus wanted the fellowship of not only the Father, but he wanted the fellowship of his friends as well. He wanted them close to him. In Jesus' deep distress and trouble, and we can't undersell these words because they're so, so important to grasp the amount of duress he's in, this is anxiety like we can't 
even imagine. He is so anxious, he's on the ground. One of the gospel accounts says that he was sweating droplets of blood. Jesus is so burdened by what's coming, he can't stand anymore. Can you imagine seeing your Lord, if they had been awake, if they could see him in this state, having seen him transfigured on the mountain, talking with Moses and Elijah, and yet what's coming, it just gives us a taste of the weight of the cross, that Jesus is on his knees, on his face, on the ground. He can't stand anymore. He's broken. He's asking the Father to take the cup from him. This is how much weight he feels in the moment. C.F.D. Mool says it this way, he is shown to be anything but above temptation. So far from sailing serenely through his trials like some superior being unconcerned with this world, he's almost dead with distress. Jesus is so broken down at this point. Can you imagine seeing our Savior in that place prior to the cross? The writer of Hebrews would agree and adds in Hebrews 4.15, For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, our Savior, collapses to the ground and asks for the Father to take this awful hour awaiting him away. Let it pass. I think it's one of those things in Scripture, and because many of us have been in church for so many years of our life, we know the story, but do you realize how impactful of a statement this is and that if somebody said this and it wasn't in the Bible, you wouldn't even take a chance of believing them? You would never even think about believing them if they said, you know, I know it's not in Scripture, but in this you know, extra-biblical writing, it says that Jesus asked for the cup to pass. You'd be like, that's heresy. He would never. He did. It's recorded in the Gospels. He asked that the cup be taken. And this is such an important moment for us, church, because so often we will feel guilty for asking God to take something from us, but we forget that Jesus himself did it, and we also forget what he says afterwards. Not what I will, but what you will. It's the most important follow-up statement to Father, take this from me. And notice the Abba that's used there. Abba, Father, is used. Church, If Jesus prayed this prayer, we can too. If Jesus prayed this prayer over circumstances in his life, we can pray it too, but we have to pray it in its entirety. We have to agree with it in its entirety and say, listen, I can ask God to take this away. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want, God. If this is what you've asked me to do, I'm going to do it. But if it's possible, can you take it away? You guys, that's a very humble prayer. That's a prayer that we can pray. And there is no more powerful mission that's been given to any human being than the mission which God entrusted to his son in human flesh, calling him to go to the cross. So I can take anything in my life and say, Lord, would you take this away? Nevertheless, not what I want, but what what you want. It's your will. Doesn't it bring us comfort to know that Jesus has felt the anxiety and the stress and the weight that we felt and so much more? He understands us. If you're hurting right now, if you're stressed right now, if you have anxiety right now, you're like, I'm borderline anxiety attack right now. Jesus knows what you're going through. He's felt it. He's your advocate. 
He's not just a mediator, although we needed a mediator. He's the advocate that comes alongside us and brings us to the Father and says, this one's mine. He's advocating for us. He sympathizes with us because all of this is familiar for him. He's felt it himself. Don't remove or dehumanize the experience of Jesus and think that he doesn't get you. That's the enemy talking. If you hear that in your heart, Jesus doesn't know what I'm going through. He's never, he's never had to experience. He hasn't lived in this 2024. He didn't have to go through COVID. We, we chuckle. But how many times have we thought he doesn't get it? And I'm not looking for hands. I think there's some of us in this room said, yeah, I've definitely questioned. I've definitely wondered. You know, the disciples did. The disciples questioned whether Jesus was off his rocker or not. Peter even tried to rebuke him. Didn't go so well, but he tried. Peter even corrected Jesus when he said, all of you will leave me, which we see happen in the text. He says, even if everyone, I love how Peter's never hesitant to throw people under the bus, right? Even if those guys do, not me, right? Jesus understands. Do you know what's beautiful about Peter's story? We laugh at him. I laugh at him a lot because he's me. You know what I love about it is what did Jesus do for Peter? Yep. Redeemed him, restored him, used him, loved him, made sure that Peter understood that he loved him and that he knew that Peter loved him as well. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter Lee's like, stop asking. It's like you, you need to understand this. I love you, and I know that you love me. Now feed my lambs. Be about the work I've given you to do, Peter. We can pray a prayer like this before the Lord, knowing that he understands us. We can pray this prayer because it's a mirror of how he taught his disciples to pray, as BJ read for us in Matthew 6, 9 through 10. I want to point this out, and I'm going to emphasize some of these words. Our Father in heaven, may your name, be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I can pray a prayer that asks God to change my circumstances. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, because it's your name and it's your kingdom and it's your will. Nevertheless, Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will. He's just echoing the prayer that he taught us to pray. It's the Father's will that matters. When he says the word Abba, it's the Aramaic intimate form of Papa. A word that Jews did not use to address God because they considered it disrespectful. And it's interesting because we look and go, well, it's Jesus, right? Reveals intimacy between Jesus and the Father so, you know, Jesus can say Abba. He can, he can speak to the Father in this term of intimacy, this like calling him Papa. It's this intimate, you know, relational thing, and, and it, it's a powerful thing. But, you know, it's different for me. I have a hard time doing that. God loves us the same as he loves the Son. He has brought us into that perfect fellowship. He's brought us into that Fellowship with the Godhead. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5.14, for all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. 
He goes on in 5.15 and says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. He says what was Jesus's relational evidence of intimacy in his language, he goes, has been given to you, church. Now you have that access. Now we enter the throne room of grace boldly to seek help and mercy in our times of need. Nothing holds us back from having the same intimate relationship with the Father that the Son has. He has given us access. We aren't God. But God loves us so much that he has brought us into intimate fellowship with himself. Nothing separates. I love what Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4. He says, you know... Those who are really going to worship very soon are going to worship in spirit and in truth. She's like, you know, wh where do you think people ought to worship? Is it this locational thing where you have to go and you got to get right and you got to get before God in this one location at this one time? And Jesus says, no, those who are going to worship are going to worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean how we sing music. It's not just a worship musician term. He's saying this, God's powerful act on our behalf through the Son and infilling of the Holy Spirit makes it so that you worship God right now and tomorrow and the next day whenever you so choose because God, the God of the universe, lives inside of us. That's a powerful thing. That's a life-changing thing. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's the weight that he was feeling is that what was about to happen to him on the cross was that all the sin of the world was going to be laid upon him. As Peter would say, all of our transgressions were nailed to him there. And he's going to give his life for us so that we can have that intimacy, so that you can walk out of here and have church in your car. You can. This building is a special place. This gathering is a special thing. But God's spirit doesn't stay here. He goes with you. And the Father is present there with the Son in the garden. Even in this darkest of moments, he's strengthening him for the task that he's about to accomplish. And in the same way that he's with the Son, he is with us because of what Christ Jesus accomplished for us. May this be the way that we learn and grow to pray, intimately expressing our anguish and our anxiety before God, and in that same breath, fully submitted to his will and relying upon his strength to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death because we know that his rod and his staff will comfort us there, not wail on us. If you were taught that, it's wrong. His rod and his staff comfort us because they are protection against attack. And he goes through the valley with us. He doesn't send us through the valley to figure it out on our own. Don't lose heart, church. If circumstances in life knock you to the ground, Jesus has been there on the ground. Jesus has felt the weight of life knock him to the ground, and he emerged completely victorious. And we will too in him. You will come through this. In verse 37 Jesus returns to the disciples. He finds them sleeping. He finds them weak and tired. He singles out Peter, likely because of his bold claims, prior to entering the garden, challenging him. Notice that Jesus challenges and then reminds him of what his true enemies are, temptation and flesh. He reveals how we protect ourselves from the temptation of flesh through what he told Peter and the others as well. Stay awake and pray. A church that does not pray is entering into temptation. 
A church that does not pray is falling asleep. We must stay awake and pray. If you want to see the power of God evident in our community, in your families, in this church, I beg of you, be a church that joins with the staff and with each other in prayer as often as possible. Let us be a church that prays, that's awake. There's a spiritual lesson to be learned here in how to defeat temptation and sin. There's also a practical one. Prayer is a spiritual practice, this, this thing that we need to do to be strengthened in the inner man. But here's the, here's the natural, practical application here. They are physically tired, and they're slipping. Natural human weakness, hunger, fatigue can pose great spiritual danger. Don't undersell rest. Don't undersell time to spend with the Lord and time to refresh yourselves. Don't undersell sleep. Don't be one of those people who says, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You might die because you're sleeping. It's a spiritual practice. Take rest. Prepare yourself for the work that God's given you. How often have we been physically worn out and made a really big spiritual mistake? How long have we been tired? And that's when we slipped up. For any of you who are like, I don't know, I can't really think of a time. Get married. You will find very quickly that in-depth, powerful conversation should not happen when you are tired. (laughs) I could mic drop here, but I'm not going to. Be rested. Be thought out. Organize your thoughts. Be prepared. The disciples are tired here. They're spiritually and physically worn out. They're failing to support Jesus in prayer. Their physical physical fatigue is going to contribute to their embarrassment. They didn't know what to say. Look at verse 40. Their overreactions, well, we know one overreacted in a huge way in a minute. We know Peter got a little knife happy. And then we look at their flight, and I think that that's also something that fatigue is aiding in in them running away and not having a clear head. Let us take care to remember to learn from the mistakes of the disciples, not harshly judging them. Church, please hear this. Let us take care to remember to learn from their mistakes and not judge them, but longing for our moments of weakness to look like his and not theirs. We want our moments of weakness, and we will experience them, to look like Jesus and not the disciples here. Jesus was victorious in that weakness. The disciples failed the task. And we're not meant to harshly judge them. We're meant to learn from that and to take the necessary steps so that we stay close to Jesus, stay connected to him, remain in his love as he just reminded them to so that we can process and go through weakness, even if it brings us to our knees, even if it brings us to the ground in a way that looks like him. After returning to find them sleeping a third time, Jesus gets them up. The time has come. Notice the call to rise in that passage. It's important. He says, get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. That get up was a call to meet the mob head on, not to flee from it. Jesus doesn't tell them, get up, let's go, let's get out of the garden. He says, get up, let's go to face this. That's an important thing. The torches are approaching. It's the middle of the night. As we look at verse 43, remember that in Mark 8.31, Jesus prophesied of this very moment. 
He prophesied of this very moment when he says, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Three groups, three groups of the, that constituted the religious leadership of the time. Notice that all three parties are present. I don't think that's a coincidence on Mark's part. He's clarifying that everything Jesus said happened. If you look at verse 43, the second half says, With him, with Judas, was a mob, swords, clubs, from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. All three groups that he said, they're going to be involved with this. All three are identified. They've come by night. They're heavily armed. Apparently, they thought they would meet some kind of resistance. They met a little bit, but it wasn't on Jesus' part. Why didn't they meet resistance? It's an obvious question. But why didn't they meet resistance? And the answer should immediately be in our hearts and our minds. Jesus had already won that battle in prayer. Asking for the cup to be passed, when he says get up and he returns for the third time to the disciples and he's prayed that prayer and it, the Father's made it clear, this is my will. This is what I've asked you to do. This is what I've sent you to do. Jesus has already won that in prayer now. He doesn't He's not going to resist anything. If he wanted to, he could have, and he would have won. Jesus has no resistance for what they're doing. He is only concerned with obedience to the Father. All he cares about is that the Father is glorified through him. Whether it was because of the darkness or because they wouldn't recognize Jesus, there's a prearranged signal that Judas organizes, and he says, I'm going to kiss him on the cheek. That's how you're going to know. Could be either reason. Maybe they didn't recognize him, or maybe it was just dark. He was concerned about being misidentified, but it was a very common thing for a disciple of a rabbi to come up and greet him with a kiss. It was traditional. It was a common thing to do. And Jesus doesn't resist arrest, but one of the disciples does, and we know from John's account that it is Peter. And the servant who had his ear cut off and restored was a man named Malchus. Makes you wonder what his experience with the Lord was in that moment. Jesus so submitted to not resisting violently, but even to healing in the garden. Jesus healed in the garden where he was betrayed. We should think about that for a good long while as well. Although not recorded in Mark's account, it's a powerful statement that Jesus makes to Peter amidst restoring Malchus's ear. This is hugely impactful. John 18, 11 reads, At that, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup? the Father has given me. What did he ask to be passed from him? The cup. Represents God's wrath. He asked that it might pass. The Father said no. So what's Jesus' intent? I aim to drink it. Even though he asked for it to pass, once decided that this was the only way, Jesus, through prayer and intimacy with the Father, has received the cup already and reveals he has every intention of drinking it, and he's going to drink it to the dregs. He's going to drain every last drop of it. Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 7, foretells of Jesus' heart in this moment. This is a powerful passage. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn my back. I gave my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. 
just the most courageous thing ever. I've set my face to do this task. I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to hide. I'm going to face it because my Father will help me and I won't be put to shame. The same God who loves the Son more than anything loves you with that same amount of love. We can accomplish what he's called us to accomplish because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Amen? We can do it. We can do the things that Jesus did because he has empowered us to do them. Apart from him, we can't do anything. Read John 15. But in Christ, when we abide in him, when we remain in his love, we can accomplish what he accomplished. We can agree with this mindset and adopt it as our own. To set your face like Flint is to reveal ultimate determination. And can't you see it in that statement to Peter in John 18, 11, there in the garden? Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? The rhetorical question's answer is already known. He certainly will and every last drop. The scriptures will be fulfilled, as Jesus said. Not only are those whom he predicted there to arrest him, but also he's completely abandoned by the eleven. He's completely abandoned by his companions. Only Mark records... The very particular abandonment that happens in the last two verses. Only Mark's gospel includes that little insert about the young man who's wearing this linen cloth and flees away naked when they try to grab him. And lots of people have looked at that and said, that's probably Mark. Maybe. It could be an author insertion. That's, that's, that's a possibility. But we don't know that. So why is it there? My honest take on this is that perhaps the main point of Mark's inclusion of this was to show that Jesus' forsakenness was so total, was so complete, no one stuck around. No one who supported him. Not just the 11. There was nobody there. He was completely abandoned. He stood alone. Our Savior, face set like flint, not resisting in any way with the cup in his hand. Intentionally taking every step forward. I aim to make you so in awe of the courage of Jesus this morning. I don't know if you've realized that. My goal is that we would walk away and that we wouldn't be thinking about some quippy saying. That we would sit down in our cars, we would go home, we would sit on our couches, we'd go about our Sunday afternoon grocery shopping, or whatever it is that you have to do, and we would just be thinking over and over in our minds, our Savior is so incredible. Our Jesus is so incredible. I wish I could have seen his face. But you know what? I get to see his face. What an amazing, life-altering thing to think about his mindset and what he did. It just, it, it, we should just sit in awe of him. That he was so set upon doing what God sent him to do that he was prepared to ransom us from sin and death and deliver us into eternal life by the spilling of his own blood, by the brokenness of his own life. He was willing to be abandoned for us. Church, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. I'm not asking for our church to go running out there and Start flipping cars over. That'd be weird. What are you willing to do for Jesus? What are you prepared to do as a loving response? You realize that his obedience 
was founded in, was rooted in the love of the Father for him. And the same love that he's experienced with the Father has been given to us. So what are we going to do with it? How are we going to live accordingly? As the worship team comes up, I'd like to ask us to do something. I'd like all of us to close our eyes and bow our heads. And I'm going to read in its entirety Isaiah 53. And I want you to think about these words, and I want you to think about what this says, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus. This is what Isaiah prophesied. So let's close our eyes, and let's just let the Lord speak to us through this, however he so chooses, by the power of the Spirit. Lord, speak to us from your word. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender reed, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us. We're like sheep who've gone astray. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shears, he didn't open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He'd never deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels, and he bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels.